Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we learn wonderful things from your law and about your law. Lord, we share the same perspective on your law as a psalmist. We love it. We delight in it. We are at liberty because of it. And we are at liberty by your law because we understand the limitations of it as far as it pertains to our salvation and our ability to practice it. But we thank you that you have given to us uh, this written representation of your nature and your character. We thank you that we may know you by a knowledge of your law. We may understand you. We thank you that you have not left us to our own passions, to our own desires, to our own confusion. We thank you that we're not like the pagans who seek a vague concept of God's will. We know who you are, Lord, and we know what you expect of us. And we know that in the strictest sense, the only one that has ever met that expectation is Jesus. And we thank you that he has done so on our behalf. I pray that you give us grace in this time as we learn these things from your word. Help us. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I especially pray for those who are here who do not know you, that they would recognize today, finally, the futility of seeking to save themselves through good works. And I praise you and I thank you for this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Today we continue and conclude our analysis of Paul's sermon in Acts 13, but in our final study of this, we're going to have a much more narrow focus. So let us simply begin again by rereading the portion of this address with which we will be dealing, and this is found in verses 38 and 39. Therefore, and then therefore is there on account of Christ and him crucified and risen, let it be known to you, brethren that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, as stated last week, in this time we're going to devote ourselves entirely to the consideration of God's law as it is used in this text, as it pertains to this original context and ours as well. And to remind you, the context here is a message crafted for and delivered to self-righteous religious practitioners. 
who have become their own saviors by their obedience to the law of Moses, or so they falsely believe. Now, our first step down this path begins with a question. And this question, to which there are multiple correct answers, is as follows. What is God's law? One right answer is that it is God's moral standard. Another is that it is a God-ordained grace necessary for human flourishing within families, societies, and nations. But it is also the character of God put into precepts. The law is, I am thus, and this is God speaking, so the people who bear my name are to behave thusly. Commandment to not commit adultery is an excellent example of this. They can all exemplify this, but why are we not to break that marital covenant? Well, it just so happens that God in the Old Covenant represents His people as a wife, and in the New Covenant this is very much clarified, and we are the bride of Christ. So why are we not to commit adultery? Because God is not an adulterer. He has a people represented as a bride, and He is faithful to them, so we are to be faithful to our spouses, as it is directly rooted in His nature and His character. So with that, we can also add to our answer that God's law is the path defined by him that we are commanded to follow. But follow to what end? To the end that we characteristically represent God's character through it or to the end that we get to God through it? Because if this path established by God is established that we may generally reflect his character, then we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief, at least if we are in Christ but if this is itself a path to God, well, then in order to truly walk it, we would have to remain upon it and to do so perfectly because to say that it is God's path is to acknowledge its perfection as God is perfect. Now, to take a step aside for a moment, although I think you'll see uh, soon that it's not a very big step to the side, recently I heard an advertisement for a series of videos expounding upon and applying actually the Old Testament. And this was uh, taught by several secular thinkers and uh, religious but not necessarily Christian and certainly not in the majority Christian. And one of these religious though not Christian teachers was a man named Dennis Prager. And you may be familiar with this gentleman. He holds a number of views that you would agree with and he has a number of pursuits that you would agree with because he shares largely your worldview and my worldview, not completely, but largely. And that is because he is what is called an Orthodox Jew. And this, of course, is an oxymoron if it is applied literally, because if you were an Orthodox Jew, there would be another uh, moniker that you might also use and primarily use, and that would be Christian. But in this brief ad, which was an excerpt from that actual series, Prager uttered a statement concerning God's law, revealing a misapprehension that is at the very heart of Paul's sermon from Acts 13. This is a misapprehension that they held that he is correcting. And Prager revealed his error through his misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels that if a man, and Matthew specifically, looks with lust after a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. And he stated with certainty that the Old Testament knows nothing of this. Old Testament Judaism has no form of this, not in the Pentateuch, not in the prophets, not in wisdom literature. You can pick up any rock, no matter how big or small, you won't find it anywhere. According to him, based upon Old Testament teaching, this is almost a verbatim quote, 
There is an organ with which a man commits adultery, but it is not his mind. And thus, if a man could restrict the operation of that other, and will leave it unnamed organ, to his wife, he could, through his restraint, be justified in at least this before God. That was exactly the position of the Pharisees in Christ's day. And it is surely the position of the Jews in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, as we find them in Acts 13. But was it always, in fact, the orthodox, air quotes, Jewish position? thus making the Christian position novel, first originating in Jesus. Well, I sure hope not, because to go back to uh, one of the points in last week's lesson, novelty and orthodoxy cannot coexist when it comes to the fundamentals of our ancient faith. You can have an abrogation of dietary laws because those are not fundamental to the nature of God. The law is fundamental to the nature of God. So you can't have a novel interpretation of it spring up. Everything then hinges upon this. If Jesus truly taught some whole new paradigm concerning the law of God, he was frankly a heretic, and we, his followers, have been made heretics by him. So it is critical then that that central lesson of conscience being equal to action was written into the law from the beginning, and it cannot be written there with invisible ink cannot require a decoder ring in order to decipher this. It needs to be obvious because of its importance to our faith and our understanding of salvation in God, such that whatever is not known by Dennis Prager and present century Jews and first century Jews can be accounted for by spiritual blindness alone and not by some fair and rational exposition. Too much rides on this to believe that God was vague on the matter of the proper use of the law as it pertained to salvation until the Gospel of Matthew. So I guess then that we would need to have these principles clearly seen in the first giving of the law. Otherwise, there are serious and I'd say fatal flaws in our position. And these flaws have very serious implications. So let us start to consider the matter and we'll begin here first with the physical nature of the second table of the Ten Commandments, which involves those commands that pertain to human-to-human -human interaction. And first we will consider, honor your father and your mother. Now, inarguably, this is carried out in physical, tangible terms. It is violated in physical, tangible terms. If you have been in a grocery store recently, you can attest to this. Okay, and so the death penalty is permitted by Moses in the event of egregious infractions. And it is, of course, worth mentioning again that there is no example of that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, I should say. So this then appears to be um, guardrails, more so to prevent that. But it is allowed for in the law because it is an actionable, observable offense. Next there is murder. Murder is, of course, a physical action. And it was responded to by theocratic Israel with capital punishment. And there are numerous biblical examples of that. Adultery is next on the list. It is a physical action as well, warranting capital punishment. There are also examples of that. Theft. Theft is a physical action. You took something tangible from somebody else. And the consequences of this were either repayment or in the event that you stole a person, again, death. Bearing false witness is next. Bearing false witness is a physical action. You speak actual words with your mouth that malign the character of another person. And if it was severe enough, this would again result in the death penalty because whatever 
your bearing false witness was designed to achieve would be brought back upon you and if you maligned them in a way that would have meant them being put to death, that was to be returned upon you. Finally, there is covetousness. And covetousness is a physical action? No, covetousness is not a physical action. Unless it is not a prosecutable offense by the state. And therefore, in contrast to the others that I just named, there is not a later point at which a penalty is prescribed by God to be meted out by the state, and in this instance, theocratic Israel. And this commandment and its nature is critical to our understanding of the whole law as it pertains especially to salvation. So before we go any further, we probably better define covetousness. And we'll start with what we know that it cannot be, which is in any way practicable or actionable, because if it were so, it would at least under certain circumstances also be discoverable. And if it were discoverable under any circumstances, there would be a prohibition in God's law concerning it and a punishment prescribed as well. And in fact, if it were actionable, it would also be known as stealing, or at least conspiracy to steal, which is often discoverable because many times plotting to steal involves other people with whom you come together. And then very often, as we see in our day as well, some of those other people blab about your intentions and it gets out. And you can think about Ahab and Jezebel with Naboth's field as an example of this. So then, clearly, this is a condition of the heart. It is a desire of the heart. This is David uh, coveting the glory of God, and so he called for a census with respect to the number of his men and and, um, military, uh, you know, horses and all of that. He did so for his own vanity and to rob God of his glory, and so God executed justice because only God could, because only God knew And remember this, because it will come up again later as we interact with the thoughts of contemporary Judaism on this subject. Now, the specific placement of these ten primary commandments within the grouping is agreed by Jews and Christians alike to be significant. Even secular thinkers agree on this. So then the the placement, for example, of honor your father and mother, that is where it is because if that is not honored, then you have no civilization. You don't have the foundation for basic societal order. And indeed, we don't have that foundation, and you can see the effects of that everywhere in this society. That's why it comes first in that grouping. But priority isn't just demonstrated by what comes first. It's also demonstrated by what comes last. And if you've taken any lessons on public speaking, you've probably been told that though you would like to screw nothing up, if you are going to screw something up, do it in the middle. Don't do it at the beginning, and don't do it at the end. First impressions are important because they're first, but final impressions, final impressions are indeed final. And the final impression of God's primary commandments is a thought crime, prosecutable by God alone, in contrast to the other commands in the second table of the law. So one question now raised is that if the law is not all exclusively about actionability and externalities, is any of it, especially considering the nature of that Tenth Commandment. Covetousness is wanting that which the Lord did not give to you. This is somebody else's property that does not belong to you, and you don't intend to acquire through legitimate means like purchasing it. Somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, 
This then obviously pertains to all the other commands. Honor your father and your mother. Little Timmy may honor that according to the letter of the law, but if in his heart he hates his parents for that exercise of authority, then what has he done? He has coveted their authority. He desires to be an authority apart from them. So he has violated the 10th commandment and the violation of that commandment. Murder. Murder is obviously covetousness. It's desiring somebody's life, which does not belong to you because that person is created in the image of God. And it is only God who can take that life justifiably as creator, as coveting the role and the right of creator God. Adultery. Adultery is coveting somebody else's spouse. And then that covetousness is carried out in the actual act. Theft, obviously. Coveting somebody else's possessions. Bearing false witness. What was true of murder is also true of false witness. You are after that person's life. You're just in this instance murdering them with your mouth. So all of those commands are spiritual as well as physical. And in fact, the beginning of the law is also undeniably spiritual and also cannot be measured purely in externals. Let's consider the first couple commandments. Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship. And I want you to hold on to that term shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first two, and indeed four, and indeed uh, all of the commandments, are about worship, but these explicitly so. What is worship? Well, I could give you a concise technical definition but I'm forming something of an apologetic here against a certain kind of thought. So I will refrain from doing that here because I think it better serves my interests to, instead of giving you a technical definition owing to Christianity, simply show you this exemplified in the Old Covenant. And you will note that it cannot be honestly interpreted as merely or even primarily external. There is what we read in Psalm 119 today. I could easily go to that. There are many, many passages here are a few of my favorites to demonstrate what I am speaking to you about. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? To me, it does not sound clinical and detached. And neither does this in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Worship, then, is a condition that begins in the soul. And because of its nature and our natures and the nature of the God that we worship, it soon pervades all of us inevitably so we will lift our hands and our mouths at a praise 
Perhaps we even dance, though not if we're Baptist, because obviously that would lead to damnation, but I'm saying other potential denominations might do that. But worship is neither merely external, nor can it be locked in a person's mind. Worship affects and involves the entirety of a person, and it begins in the mind and the heart and in the soul. Meaning that you can live Leviticus to the T and still not actually be worshiping Yahweh. And so we see that if God removes the scales from our eyes, the Ten Commandments are from beginning to end and everything in between spiritual, though certainly they demand action as well, thus they are not the Ten Suggestions. And they demand both because human beings are created by our Creator, body and soul. And this is also seen in the law being bound to their foreheads and on their hands per Deuteronomy 11. Forehead, signifying belief, signifying faith, conscience. Hand, signifying action, doing. And what the parishioners in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch have no concept of is the spiritual component. No doubt they use terms like belief and faith, but they don't understand what they mean. Their religion is a paint by numbers. In other words, they do this, God does that. And the that here is, of course, salvation. And none of this comports remotely with the gospel. The gospel is not about what you do. It is about what Christ has done for you. Listen again, verses 38 and 39. Therefore, again, on account of Christ crucified and risen, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, Christ, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, last week we concluded with great stress being placed upon forgiveness. But I ask you now, who can be forgiven? And I am not looking at this from a Calvinistic perspective. So if you say those who were ordained to salvation from before the foundations of the world, you get Calvinist points, but I'm actually looking for something much more simple here. Who can be forgiven? How about sinners? Only sinners. Lawbreakers. Only lawbreakers. So in this context alone, will you hear me say the following? You had better be a sinner. In fact, you are a sinner. I'm demonstrating that as the purpose of the law as it pertains to salvation. Remember that question that I began with, what is the law for? There are many answers, as I said, demonstrating to a sinner that they are a sinner is chief among them in importance as it concerns our souls. Human flourishing depends upon adherence to the law generally. Christian sanctification depends upon loving the law and obeying it. But salvation depends upon knowing that you have, that you are, that you will be in the future, disobeying it this side of heaven. On this, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 21 through 25, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor that leads us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says there that the law is a tutor. Another version has it as schoolmaster or as we would say, school teacher. And we have all had school teachers whose lessons we could not understand. There are two reasons for this fundamentally, and that is 
either in the first event they were unclear or in the second we were too dull to understand what they were saying. With God's law, though, and those who fail to comprehend it and its lesson that leads to faith, it is always the latter problem. But the dullness here, understand, is not intellectual. It is spiritual. Not to keep picking on Dennis Prager. Actually, let me give him a compliment. He's very, very smart. There's no way to account for his life and his accomplishments outside of that. That is obvious. But the mind, no matter how intelligent, on its own, cannot overcome that self-righteousness that says, I can contribute to my own salvation. And so the mind will work as hard as it needs to to find a loophole. And on that note, here is the previously alluded to thoughts of contemporary Judaism on the subject of covetousness. The following is from one of their commentaries on Exodus 20, verse 17. And as I read this, I will deliberately emphasize certain terms for reasons that I will soon explain. Commentator says this, quote, Some view this, the prohibition against covetousness, as an ethical exhortation to master the kinds of impulses that would lead to violation of the preceding commandments. Yes, some like me. But the Hebrew verb, sometimes, refers to having designs on a desired object, Perhaps, even scheming or maneuvering to acquire it, hence the sense could be, do not scheme to acquire your neighbor's house, that is household. Now that quote is not taken from an obscure work. This is from the Jewish Study Bible in conjunction with the Jewish Publication Society and put out by the Oxford University Press, presently occupying my heresy shelf in my library. Not because of the scriptures, but because of the commentary beneath them. Uh, there are dozens of contributors to this work. And the man who handles the book of Exodus only handles Exodus, which leads me to believe that he is reputed to be an expert on its contents. And his name is Jeffrey H. Tagay. Oh, I don't know Jeff at all. But I can tell you that one of two things are true considering his commentary on Exodus 20, verse 17. And that is first, that he does not believe his own explanation or second, that he at least knows that his argumentation is extraordinarily weak. And here is the tell. It is the frequent use of terms like sometimes, perhaps, and could be. That is why I emphasize those as I read that to you. Nobody who's confident in their position, irrespective of what your position may be on, uses all three of those terms in the same sentence when defining that position. Certainty calls for terms like, well, certainly, and of course, and obviously, and I know this is true, he doesn't take that tact. He is uncertain, but he still has to offer this as an explanation. And he does indeed have to. And he understands this because he's clearly a bright fellow. He cannot allow this to be about, as he calls them, impulses. Because if he does, his whole externalization of the religion of Yahweh is at once debunked, and the law is no longer mere external conformity, but a demand for internal perfection to which no man can attain, necessitating Christ as Savior. In fact, if he admits that conscience is involved in this, that conscience is indeed central to this, then his interpretation of the law, and especially the seventh commandment, is going to start to sound dangerously close to, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. 
Now, I maintain that Prager and Tagay and contemporary Judaism and the Jews in Acts 13 all have a spiritual problem, as I have said. But in fact, they have many. It's not just one. But it will be of great benefit to us to determine which problem is the greatest among them so that we're not effectively addressing ugly drapes while the foundations are crumbling. So clearly, first off, they don't understand the law. They don't get it at all. They have totally missed the plot. But this is a problem. It is not the greatest problem. Clearly, also, they do not understand their own natures, else we could not account for how it is that they think people like us could live up to that degree of perfection. This, again, is a problem. It is not the greatest problem. What is the greatest problem? They don't understand the lawgiver. They don't understand God. They don't understand him at all. They somehow missed the lesson of Uzzah being struck dead for what seems like a pretty innocuous, benign oopsies. But God is that holy. They have missed the lesson of Moses not entering the promised land. I mean, here is the gentleman who is referred to in the Old Testament as the most humble or meek man on planet Earth. He has been dealing with these obstinate people for years and years, and he lashes out, and God does not simply say, it's okay, I understand you've had a hard day. He says, you will not enter. But then perhaps somebody will offer David as an example of God's forgiveness. And if you do, you do well. David is a profound example of God's forgiveness. A murderer and an adulterer. And the Lord did indeed forgive him. But by what means was David forgiven and thus permitted to remain the progenitor of the kingly line that was fulfilled in Christ? And what differentiates David from Uzzah? And why is David allowed to remain the great patriarch of the promised messianic line while Moses is prevented even from entering the promised land on account of his sin? Is God capricious? Is God like a no offense teenage girls, but is God like a teenage girlfriend? Is he affectionate one minute and then aloof another? Or is there a mechanism that accounts for this apparent inconsistency and leniency that is consistent, actually, with God's steadfast nature? Indeed, there is, and that mechanism is called grace. But then how is grace not at odds with the law? Because in the law, there is the sacrificial system. Why does all that blood have to be shed so that man knows that without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sins? Yes, but why does all that blood have to be shed so that man knows that no amount of blood from bulls and goats will ever atone for the sins of men? That there must be something else. That the rituals are not accomplishing what Christ alone can. Maybe you're sitting here, though, as an astute listener, and you're thinking back to the two categories that Paul is speaking to, going back to previous sermons on this. And those two categories, again, are men of Israel, Jews, and those classified as God-fearers who are Gentile proselytes or something like Gentile proselyte adjacent that are in the court of the Gentiles listening to this. And because you are in neither category, you consider yourself unaccountable to God's law. Well, then, to you, Paul says this, Romans two fourteen through 16, when Gentiles who do not have the law 
do instinctively the things of the law. These though not having the law or a law unto themselves, and they show the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That is you, friend. That's everybody else. You are under contract. You are under covenant. You did not need to sign your name to it. By virtue of the fact that you have been created and that you bear the image of the God who created you, this covenant binds you. You have it written on your conscience. It wasn't just written on the tablets. You know this. You know this intuitively. That's why civilizations separated by continents and oceans have drawn the same fundamental conclusions about basic principles of morality because everybody knows this. What you must realize is that you have no hope without Christ. And you know, I stressed that people were sinners at the beginning and that we need to recognize that we're sinners, but in reality, I don't think that most people, really hardly anybody has a problem accepting in some vague way that they are a sinner. Even for people as given to self-delusions as we are, ascribing perfection to our natures is a tough sell. Most people, more or less, hold to an understanding that they are not perfect. You don't have a problem if you tell them that. The problem comes when you tell them that by the standard of God's law, they are through and through sinful. They are what Isaiah referred to as sick in the whole head and faint in the whole heart. When you do that, they reject your message. And I was trying to locate the video that I wanted from Prager. I came across another, him speaking as well. And he, in this video, rightly acknowledged that his view of, though he didn't call it this justification, I think he referred to it as salvation, was much more akin to that of the Roman Catholics than it was to we Protestants. He was not wrong about that. He is right. A little bit of me, a little bit of God. But though he was right in that conclusion, of course, both of those groups are desperately wrong. And in fact, it's not just him who believes that. It's not just the Roman Catholics who believe that. Pagans have a form of this too. They don't have a problem with the idea that some deity, some godlike figure has to help them. The problem is the idea that they have to do it all. It repulses us down through our deepest levels to believe that we have nothing. To believe that we repulse our maker to such an extent that he would deliver the Holy One to be slaughtered as the only solution. It has to be all of God's grace. It cannot be any combination of God's grace and your effort. To anybody who is conceiving of grace that way, you use a term you do not understand. If grace is not all of God, it is not grace at all. If grace is not all of God, it is not grace at all. If all of the oceans on this planet represented the grace of God and you took a thimble full of your own good works and you poured it in, it now ceases to be God's grace and therefore cannot save you. Because the grace of God is only God. 
It is only Him doing it or else it is not grace. It must be Christ alone. If you have felt that this is technical, let me make it very simple. You offer nothing to God. Nothing. For what you thought this morning, you are condemned. That is the nature of this God. That is how good He is. I think you're nice people. I think that of all of you. But I'm not the standard bearer. I'm not the one who sets the standard. You're not nice people by the standard of God. You will not stand before Him on your own merit. Not today, not ever. Only Christ saves. Only Christ kept the law in every point at all times to utter perfection. That searching light of God that scours the souls of men that will find any blemish whatsoever. It shone into the soul of the God-man and it found nothing but righteousness ever. If you cannot do that and you cannot do that, then you cannot justify yourself by the use of the law. Now, do I fear the law now as a Christian? No, I'm at liberty just like psalmist, the psalmist in 119. But I'm at liberty because I know how to use the law lawfully. If I use the law the way that these people do, I would be racked with anxiety. I would have no peace whatsoever because I can't keep it. I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. To affirm this simple message one more time, I will simply close as I began with Paul's words. Therefore, on account of Christ crucified and risen, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Heavenly Father, I pray that they'll understand. I pray that you would save those in this congregation that are still not saved. That are still under your wrath. And I pray that if there are any here who have been representing themselves as believers, but ultimately working to earn their salvation, not working because of their salvation, but working to earn their salvation, I pray that you would pull the scales off of their eyes even today, that you would show them their desperate need of Christ as Savior, that they would leave this, that they would look upon themselves and see that there is nothing there that can hope to gain them merit with a holy God. You are not a man. You are not like men. You will not be appeased with what appeases mere men. You supply and are satisfied with perfection and only that. And praise you for the fact that you gave us that perfection in the Lord Jesus. And we praise you and we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. <laughs> 